0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the third Sunday after the Epiphany in year C. Our texts are the Old Testament reading from Nehemiah chapter 8. It is a bit strange. It's verses 1 through 3, verses 5 through 6, and verses 8 through 10. We'll talk about that when we get to the text. The epistle is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31-31 part a and then the gospel reading is from luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 30. so we begin with the old testament reading out of nehemiah chapter 8 and again it's 1 2 3 5 6 8 9 and 10 are the verses that we will be reading together skipping over verses 4 and 7 and when you look at verses 4 and 7 it's quite intentional we're going to look at all of them i'm going to read the selected reading And when we get to verse 4 and when we get to verse 7, I will go ahead and read those texts and catch up to speed on what we missed. So, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 8, for context for this together, we're in the year, it looks like 444 BC. We're in the reign of, I believe it's Artaxerxes of Persia. And Nehemiah has been sent to the city of Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls of the city. And at this point, those walls have been rebuilt. The people, as we see at the end of chapter 7, are now living in their towns again. That is, they had come to Jerusalem to rebuild. Now they've gone basically back home in this now, well, still the country of Persia, but land of Judah. The first paragraph, verses 1 through 3. and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the Watergate is on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. So the people have, even though they've gone back to living in their towns again, they have gathered together as one man. So one body, one congregation of the people. And they've come inside the city wall, and they are now in this opening, this square in the city, And Ezra, who is both scribe and priest, so priest in charge of the sacrifices, scribe in charge of copying the sacred scriptures, he brings the the book of the law, that would be the first five books of scripture as we know it, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch or even Torah, which is the Hebrew word for instruction or law, He brings those books which God has commanded Israel, right? Yahweh gave those to Moses on Mount Sinai. And Ezra then, before the entire congregation assembled, is going to read from that book of the law. Now we see both who's gathered, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Now, that would seem... To me to be all people. Like, the way it's phrased makes you think that this is a, a gathering that exempts some. But who would you exempt, right? Who would we think that can't understand? Our minds would probably first consider small children, that the little ones can't understand, so why bring them, right? How are they going to sit still for all this time? We'll talk about how much time it is in just a moment. But if all the men and the women who can understand are present, where would the children be? All the men and women are present, right? All who could understand. That means that there are no adults of sound mind that could be outside of the the city, back in their towns, watching the little children. And they would not have left their small children unattended in their towns because then it would be easy pickings for an enemy. So in my, uh, my reading of this and my, my thinking of this, I would assume that everybody's there, including children. And when is this? It's the first day of the seventh month. So again, 444 B.C. here. And Ezra reads the Bible to them. He reads the Pentateuch genesis through deuteronomy from early morning until midday roughly six hours i don't know about you and your congregation i don't know about your worship practices when you gather together in the lord's house i know in a previous congregation I served that people would get upset if the service went over an hour. I had a congregation that I was a part of when I was growing up that the service had to be right in the 58 to 60-minute window um, because they, they participated in, in radio broadcasting. There is, there's a lot of America in this, whereas if you were to go to another nation, you were to go to Africa— uh, as a continent, really, Christianity there, their worship looks so different in comparison. An hour would be considered extremely short. Um, so, six hours. Six hours. Could you imagine sitting in the pew in your church and listening to your pastor read the Bible to you for six hours? Now, maybe a handful of you could. Praise the Lord for your desire to hear God's word. For those of you who cannot, um, perhaps pray to the Lord that you would have such a hunger for his word that time wouldn't be relevant. That's a good way to phrase it, right? Not to condemn, but to just look at it from that perspective, that we would desire and thirst for God's word. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Six hours. The ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. This, again, uh, you know, to critique things of today, people have trouble paying attention to their pastor's sermons. And I'm in on that, right? I'm, a, I'm an associate pastor. I have a senior pastor, and we, we flip-flop. We, we preach every other weekend. And so when he's preaching, I also have difficulty paying attention to every word he says. Six hours they paid attention to the reading of Ezra as he read the book of, the, of God, the, the words of the Lord, 15 minutes today there granted there are some church bodies where their sermons are longer um pushing closer to 45 minutes to an hour but still six how many of us could even sit for a work day and not lose focus right i mean this is this is something something to certainly remark about anyway as we then keep going, we would be skipping over verse 4, so let me read verse 4 for you since you won't hear it read in your church. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Meseah on his right hand, and Pideah, Mishael, Melkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, and Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. All right, so as I go through that verse, you can probably imagine why it has been removed, um, but that's still dangerous, right? You're cutting out the names, but as you cut out the names, you're cutting out the history. Each of those names that I just read, and how many is it? One, two, three, four, five, six people on his right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven people standing to his left. Those are 13 fellow Israelites, or from our perspective today, perhaps 13 fellow followers of Christ. These are real men that we just chopped out because we didn't want to have to pronounce their names. It, it takes away from the historicity of the text. We, we have that struggle today of enough people thinking that the Bible is just made up, why why double back why why harm ourselves further in this way by by stripping away the historical reality of the text this is not just Ezra right these are real people with real names who occupied space in this world because God created them and he wanted to redeem them and these are his supporters that day Ezra is not standing up there all by himself. But there are people, probably chiefs of the people, who are standing there beside him to show the people that this is, this is God's word and they support this priest and what he's doing. And support your local pastor, right? That he may know he is not alone. And... Then you have the wooden support, the wooden platform that is mentioned there, or tower of wood, perhaps, as the study Bible suggests that it would be in, in the Hebrew. The idea here is almost like a pulpit. When you have a pulpit today, oftentimes the pulpit now is just symbolic. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it, it serves the function, if any of being the place from which the pastor preaches his sermon. And so when, you, when it's time for the sermon, you look to the pulpit. That's where you expect to see your pastor. But, historically, it had more reasoning behind it than that. The pastors would preach from the pulpit in the days before microphones because that elevation allowed their speaking to carry over the people better. It allowed them to be heard even by people in the back of the congregation as well. And so there are still a few of those really historic pulpits around that you can see. Maybe your church has one, and where the pastor has to go up a staircase to even get into the pulpit. And that's the reasoning for it. Now here, it's actually very quite similar. And they have built him a wooden platform or a tower of wood that he would stand upon in order that he is elevated above the people. This isn't a, a ranking idea. This is, a, this is an idea of allowing the people to hear him preach. And in this case, hear him read the word of the Lord. So let's read verses 5 and 6. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. This almost feels like going back, right? Uh, We just read that he did this from early morning until midday. Now we're in verse 5. He's opening the book. It Seems out of order. Just take it in the full context here. This is I guess technically, yeah, verse 5 comes before verse 3, if you're trying to put this into chronological order. So he is above all the people. Again, that's literal from that platform that he's standing on so that they can see and hear as he reads God's word to them. And notice what the people do when Ezra opens up the book of the law. They stand. Now they're standing for six hours, right, as he reads to them. And then he blesses Yahweh, so he gives thanks to God, and the people respond, Amen. And they lift up their hands, which is a posture of prayer among the people. We see this even in the New Testament, that Paul encourages in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that men everywhere would lift up holy hands in prayer. This idea of blessing is when we bless God, we are giving thanks to God for what he has done for us. And we see that actually in our liturgy as well. We say, let us bless the Lord. Uh, The pastor says, let us bless the Lord. And the people respond, thanks be to God. They're blessing the Lord in the manner that we just described. So then after the prayer, they bowed their heads and worshiped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. That could be, the way I think we read that in English would be the the way that we tend to pray today, right? You fold your hands, you bow your head, and you pray with your face pointed towards the ground, right? Eyes closed because you're, you know, you're trying to not get distracted. That's the purpose for that. But this might be more than that. This might be the, the old actual posture of worship, that they weren't just bowing their heads, but as they worshiped, they bowed all of themselves, um, and so they were actually on the ground. Uh, it doesn't grammatically come across that way, but it's a possibility for us as that was the normal posture for worship, and even still is actually in many places in the world. All right. then we have verse 7 that we skip and i'll let you guess why right it's going to be the same idea verse 7 also jeshua Bani, sherebiah jaman akub shabbath hodiah messiah kalita azariah josebad hanan Peleah, the levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places that's verse 7 that we've skipped, and again you have the skipping over of names. 3, 6, 9, 12, 13 individuals named, plus the Levites. So now you have an entire tribe of the Israelites, those who have been set aside to be priests. They are going through and helping people understand the law of God. This then, as we will see also with verse 8, becomes like our sermon style of today, right? Your pastor preaches a sermon to help you understand the word of the Lord that he has read to you in the service already. So we will have, as we do, I mean, you're following, you're listening to a podcast about a three-year lectionary. These are the texts that are going to be read in church. So this weekend, we read from Nehemiah 8, 1 Corinthians 12, and Luke 4. Your pastor will stand up in the pulpit after having read these texts to you, and he will pick one of them, and he will preach it. Some pastors like to try and weave all three texts together, but most pastors, I think, usually just stick to one and try to preach that one text of Scripture. So you can see the pattern. You can see the commonality in that. Verses 8 through 10, to finish the Old Testament reading here, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Like I said as we were going through verse seven there, this is almost like our our sermon style, that we read the text and then preach upon it so that the people can understand God's word better. And this is going to help set the pattern, in a sense, for what happens in synagogue worship, which is the reason why we're reading Nehemiah 9 this weekend, paired with Luke chapter 4, because Jesus enters the synagogue, opens the scroll of Isaiah, reads from it, and then sits down and teaches from it. So that connection is the reason for this text being picked. Now, that synagogue pattern of worship, reading the Word of God, and then expounding upon the Word of God... Is established right here. Now, as we saw with verse 7 as well, perhaps the six hours of the day included this preaching and teaching. And so the people were sitting down for some of this. Maybe they stood for all of it. Maybe the six hours is the time Ezra read from, which is what it sounds like in verse 3. So let's stick with that. And that then in the afternoon, after midday, the people were then able to understand the word better as it was explained to them by those 13 men and also the Levites mentioned in verse 7. So picture it that way. Six hours of hearing God's word read, and then the sermon began, or and then the Bible study began together. Nehemiah then, who is the governor, and Ezra together, as the, Ezra is the priest and the scribe, And then also the Levites who had been teaching the people, here's another thing that they added to what they were teaching. This day is holy to Yahweh your God, do not mourn or weep. This is being set apart as a holy day, a festival day, a day for the congregation to assemble. It's the idea that we understand with the Sabbath, that they were to rest and to worship on this day. And this in fact, as you would continue in the text, If you were to read on to the next paragraph, you would see that they were about to begin celebrating the Feast of Booths together, which is a week-long celebration that is marked on the first day and on the eighth day by a holy convocation, a day in which the people of Israel are not to work. It's a celebration remembering what God has done for his people as he delivered them from Egypt, and then he provided for them as they wandered the wilderness until they reached the promised land. So that's what the Feast of Booths specifically is about, right? Booth, tent, that they lived in tents and God cared for them. And so the people of Israel were supposed to do that every seventh month. So, and in, in, I should say, every year in the seventh month, they were to celebrate the Feast of Booths, so they were to live in a tent for a week to remember what God had done for their people, how God had rescued and how God had delivered And so this is a celebratory time. It's not a time for grieving. As you continue again in Nehemiah, after the celebration of the Feast of Booths, then you get to chapter 9, you would see the idea that they then grieved as they confessed their sin unto the Lord. So they were weeping. They were beginning to weep because they had heard the word of the law and realized that they had failed to keep God's word. And so they were beginning repentance. And that is actually, that process of grief is put on hold, that they would celebrate, that they would rejoice instead in what God has done for them. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and then also send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, because this day is holy, it's like the Sabbath again, they're not supposed to work. So if you don't have any food prepared, what are you going to eat? Well, you get to eat what your neighbor had, had prepared already. So you're taking care of each other, and... Again, they're not grieved because the joy of Yahweh is your strength. A nice little phrase to end our Old Testament reading on. This would be similar to what I mentioned before as I cited from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. The joy of Yahweh is your strength. Joy is like a treasure. And so Our treasuring of God and of his promises and of what he has done for us, that is our strength. Just as the word of God carries us through the day, so does our faith in God carry us through the day. It carries us through these trials and tribulations. And so the people are grieving. They realize that they have sinned against God. And the response of the leaders, know that the Lord is there for you. Know that he is your strength. Know that he is. Has carried you all this time and he will continue to carry you still the Lord is our strength beautiful phrase Uh, for the Christian we'd probably think of Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus one final note on this text just something that I was thinking about before as we think of moat Well, Ezra reading the book of the law before them for six hours straight, how much of it would he have actually been able to read in that time? And this is where I did a little exploring myself. So for me, I can preach a 2,000 word sermon in about 15 minutes. It's about 133 words a minute. There are roughly 125,000 words in the first five books of the Bible. So if I were to read God's word out loud to my congregation this weekend at the same speed that I preach at, it would take me between 15 and 16 hours to read the entirety of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So Ezra is unlikely, right, to have gotten through the whole book of the law, which is why, as you see in the next section, the rest of chapter 8. They actually read the law. They read from the book of the law together daily during that Feast of Booths. The epistle text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31a. This is our second week in a row in 1 Corinthians, and it's the second of six, as we'll keep going for the rest of the Epiphany season together. And this is continuous, picking up right where we left off last week, next weekend we'll do the same. So we end with 31a and we'll pick up with 31b next week. So let's go ahead and, well, before we dig in, just a brief recalling that the beginning of chapter 12 helped us to focus on the idea of spiritual gifts, that there is only one God, right? These, these men who are in the church in Corinth, they came from a various spread of pagan mythology, with the Roman and Greek gods that they may have worshipped. It's the port city of Corinth, so the sea gods, or it's a retirement community for Roman veterans, so Mars um, is the Roman god of war. Those are examples, and they followed lots of these things. Well, now there is but one god. You're no longer part of a polytheistic, multi-god worldview. You are part of a one God, worldview, and this one God, same God that you all share, has given to you different gifts, not because he favors some over others, but for the sake of building up his body, and that's what we're going to pick up with in the text today. Verses 12 and 13, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One body. So you think of your body, and that's what today's text is going to invite you to do. Consider your body and how the Lord has made you and how your body does not consist of just one part, but many, right? There are many members. You have various numbers of toes, and fingers and joints like your elbows and your knees and your shoulders. You have organs inside of you uh, that that do various bodily functions, your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your liver, your stomach. You have the other external things that people see like your hair or your eyes. Um, The eyes doubling over is something that gives you senses, right? So your eyes can see, your nose can smell, your ears can hear, your mouth can speak, your skin can feel. All these sorts of things are important and in play for this conversation. The Lord has made you. You are one, although your body consists of many parts. Now Paul invites us by the Spirit's inspiration, that one same Spirit, to consider that that is how the church functions also that you and I are individually members of God's church, but together we are one body. Not many. We are one together. One flesh. We are baptized into one body. It doesn't matter if you're Jews or Greeks. It doesn't matter if you're slaves or free. Those are Images that Americans have trouble wrestling with. So let me go to some more contemporary things, uh, 2022 things. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. We are one body. How'd I do, right? Those hit home where slave and free may not hit home. We're one, all of us. In the church together. There are not two churches of Jesus. Jesus' body is not divided. It is but one body. We all drink of one spirit. That is, that there's only one Holy Spirit, and he gives faith to all of us in the church. Even if our faith may be weak, even if our faith may be filled with doubt, even if we might have all sorts of things wonky about God's Word, and what we believe, teach, and confess. We are still one body. As long as you can confess, as we saw at the start of the chapter, that Jesus is Lord. If you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, who died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, right, this is faith. Faith receives the gift, the gifts that Christ has to give. All right, let's look at the next paragraph, which here is going to be verses 14 through 20. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear where would be the sense of smell but as it is god arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose if all were a single member where would the body be as it is there are many parts yet one body now today it might be tempting to use the different denominations the different styles and and things like that as the distinctions of the different body parts Um, But the text itself does not lend to that, right? As you read through it, God arranged the members in the body. The Lord is not the one who is the cause for our false teaching. The Lord is not the one who is at fault for the divisions that we have with one another because we like to manipulate God's word to say things that it doesn't actually say those things are our own faults and on the day of judgment even if we think we have everything right here and now probably be surprised to hear god say why were you teaching this why did you believe this we should be humble about it not boastful not prideful it is those ideas of boasting and pride that this text is really speaking against as it has from again the beginning of this chapter they were seeing different gifts of having different value and believing that they were favored more or less because they had these different gifts and here paul is telling them god has arranged the body just as he saw fit this would be verse 11 that the spirit gave different gifts to his people as he intended as he willed it so the spirit gave you whatever gifts that you have and the spirit gave to your spouse whatever gifts that they have and the Spirit gives to your children whatever gifts they have. And the Spirit gave to your pastor or to your whoever in your church the different gifts that they have. And he has done all of this for the sake of building up the body of Christ. If everyone had wisdom and nobody had knowledge, well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be that helpful. But if we have people that have wisdom and you have others that have knowledge the people that have wisdom can build up those who don't to be more wise the people that have the knowledge can build up those who don't to be more knowledgeable about what christ has done for them these are good things so you have one body that is filled with many gifts and these gifts then benefit one another in the life of the church just as the various parts of the body benefit one another If all you had was an, an, well, if all you were was a bunch of connected eyeballs, you wouldn't be able to hear anything. You wouldn't be able to touch or feel touch. You wouldn't be able to speak. You see that, right? I mean, that's the challenge that's going on here. That's the, the image that we are being invited to consider. But instead, there are some in the church who speak. There are some in the church. You get the picture. We have these different gifts and the lord has arranged it that way so the various gifts that god gives is the distinction here it is not the the man-made divisions that we've come up with our fights over and i'm not saying our fights over things shouldn't happen it matters what the lord believes and teaches about baptism so it should matter to us right we believe baptism saves, which you'll read in 1 Peter 3.21, for example. There are Christians who don't. We should talk about that. We should, but that's not what this text is about. This is not the Lord saying he's given Baptists and he's given Lutherans in his church. Different gifts that we use to build one another up Gifts of service, gifts of preaching, gifts of teaching. We're going to see some of that at the end of the chapter before we wrap. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. All right, next paragraph is verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. so here same language is being used parts of the body cannot reject the other parts of the body so the eye cannot say to the hand i have no need of you if you have no hands your body is not going to be as functional it's not going to be able to serve as well and so the preacher cannot say to the server i mean these are even just ones given right in scripture acts the book of acts is you have the 12 apostles and then you have the deacons that they set up because it was not good for them to abandon the preaching of God's word in order to serve tables. But the serving of tables still needed to be done. The widows needed to be cared for. And so now you've got these different roles in the church. And this was seen as good. And so that's an example of this. The preacher cannot say to the one who was serving the tables, we have no need of you in the church anymore. Goodbye. The church would suffer for it. The widows would have suffered for it. And that's the sort of picture here, again, with the body. Different gifts given to the different people in the church. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, distinguishing between spirits. Um, I'm missing one of the big ones from chapter 12's beginning. Prophecy. That would be the last one that we had. So we've got those five. Then you also had, back then, miracles, healing, healing. Um, also speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues, that all these different things existed. There were different kinds of activities. There were different kinds of service. And in the next paragraph, we're going to get a few more things added to such a list. But for the meantime, we have a bit of a different conversation in this paragraph starting at verse 22. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually to be considered indispensable. Those that are less honorable, we give greater honor. Those that are unpresentable, we treat with greater modesty. So what is Paul encouraging us to consider with these verses? Well, for the first one, the idea of the weaker things being indispensable, and really in connection to the the theme of this section and the theme of the letter. So let's connect it to both. The theme of the section is, again, contrary to the boasting. So, those who think that their gift is better perhaps it's speaking in tongues or perhaps it's preaching they cannot look at the weaker roles so that, again the example before the one serving the table and say that that can be done away with right that's what that connects it to this it's contrary to the boasting just because you think you're you have the higher gift doesn't mean the other gifts don't matter doesn't mean the body doesn't still need them So, a push for humility here. But also, let's connect it to the book as a whole. Go back to chapter 1. Listen to these verses of of Paul there. So, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord can you see the connection of the the fullness of the the book here with that theme the idea that we are to be humble before God not to boast of ourselves these gifts are gifts that God himself has given and so we should not boast in them this is what Paul said at the start of the chapter, even, I believe. Um, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right, It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve this thing on your own. You didn't even get faith on your own. That's a gift, too. Uh, so we, we seek to be humble and to serve together. Now, verse 23 is going to present other things. So we have weaker as opposed to stronger. To stronger or better, verse twenty three gives us less honorable and greater honor, and also unpresentable parts with greater modesty. So the unpresentable parts—that's the easier one, right? Um, the the various reproductive organs, for example, uh, we treat that with great modesty and we cover those things. Um, so there might be those in the church that need to be hidden from the world because of various things. Maybe they are in danger. Like this could be a real-life applicable example right now of the, the person who has been abused, and they're, they are, they're in risk of ongoing danger. And so as the church, we are protecting them and caring for them, and we do so with great modesty separately but also an unpresentable idea perhaps are the people that do the work of your congregation behind the scenes that nobody else even seems to know exist right have you ever had one of those things at your church that after maybe a member died that had been there for a long time suddenly something stopped happening and everybody wondered oh why did that stop happening and then you realized Like that, this person had done that for the last thirty years, and it was just—it was quiet, it was humble, it was done in service. And so that might be another way to consider the unpresentable parts. How about the less honorable? A couple of these that I can bring up pretty easily, like the ones that clean your church. Do you give thanks for them? How about how about mothers? right? We live in a society today that believes motherhood is almost evil. In fact, you can find people that would call it evil, but it's it's seen as lesser than, right? It's better for a woman to get a career. It's better for a woman to achieve all of her goals of happiness and, and success in this life. I would say that's not even good for men either, but... You think of the mom who's staying at home, who's caring for those little kids, who's changing those diapers. That's not not something the world looks at as an honorable task, and yet she is serving the little children. Those are God's creatures that God has made, that Jesus died for, and that woman is caring for them. The world may not think it's honorable, but the church does. The church is one of the last places on this this earth right now that is still honoring and showing and trying to express that honor of something like being a, a wife or a mother. From the masculine side of things, too. I mean, the, the idea that you would even bother to get married is is falling into decline quickly among men. So the things that the world doesn't believe are honorable, yeah, the church honors those things and we, we seek to lift them up. So hopefully that's something to consider and to think about as you, you read through this text. God has so composed the body. There'd be no division in the body, but that members would have the same care for one another. So it doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a teacher or an administrator or a, a helper, as we see some of those examples coming up, we are together one body. And if one member suffers, the body suffers. The illustration of this, right, is, you know, you're, you're working around the house, you smash your thumb, and what happens? Your whole body recoils when you smash your thumb, right? It's not just like you hit your thumb and your thumb's kind of sitting there in pain, but the rest of the body's okay. No, your whole body is seized in that moment, right? And that pain radiates through the body. You just feel it. As one member of the church suffers, we all suffer. We're together in this. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. We are one body. That's the point to keep in mind throughout the text. One body in Christ. All right, let's conclude with the last paragraph, verses 27 through 31 a. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts." So, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ. I stress that word now because this isn't a future thing. This is true now, that we are the body of Christ. His. Now. This isn't paradise that we're talking about, although I I would imagine that paradise would still have the same one body of Christ concept, but... This is a reality for us as we live our daily life here. All right, so here's some of the things that God has placed into his body, his one body that is the church, apostles. In the New Testament, we know of 16 apostles by name. You have the 12 disciples of Jesus for those three years of earthly ministry together. They are labeled as apostles. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that. And then you have, um, as you get into the book of Acts, after judas iscariot's betrayal and then his suicide you have a replacement raised up by lot as they cast lots and they land on matthias to be the replacement to make the number back to 12 again but that makes the apostles 13. and then you get paul and you also get barnabas barnabas is identified as an apostle in the book of acts and you have james the brother of jesus who becomes the head of the church in jerusalem he is going to be identified as an apostle, I believe, in the book of Galatians, the first chapter. So, six, 16 of them, right, in Scripture. Then you also have prophets that the Lord gave to his church. Now, prophets are those who have been given the ability by God to speak his word. Um, the idea of the Old Testament prophet, they heard the word of God, they received a revelation from God of what God wanted to say to his people, and then they went and they said it. Those words were often words of either one of two things, really. Repent or forgiveness. So repentance and judgment if they didn't or they would be forgiven. And sometimes this meant that the prophets could tell the future. Not because the prophets had the ability to tell the future, but because God told them the future, right? Uh, there's a distinction in that. They weren't fortune tellers. The Lord revealed to them what was going to come. So Hebrews 1 is an important note here the way that book begins that in the former days God spoke to his people of old by the prophets but now in these latter days he has spoken to us by his son this is important for us to remember as well so Apostles that's a greater gift than prophet and the prophets came prior to Christ now the Apostles have seen the risen Christ Then you have teachers then miracles gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. So teachers would teach the word of God. Miracle workers would, would do things like healing. It's interesting that in both this and earlier in the chapter as well, miracles and healing were kept distinct from one another. A miracle basically being some sort of a work of power, kind of the way the Greek language would work here. But the way I tend to describe a miracle is when God does something outside of the way he ordinarily designed things to happen. So a baby being born is not a miracle. One of the most common places we use the word miracle in the English language today. Not a miracle. That's the way God designed things to work. Now, could a child born at 22 weeks that survives, could we call that a miracle? I think we can, because that's not the normal way it's supposed to work, right? Or, the again, the gift of healing. If someone someone wasn't supposed to make it, The doctors told them they only had a couple months to live, and then suddenly they're all better, which does happen. That would be an example of a miracle of healing. Um, Other miracles can still occur as well, though, that aren't healing related. Um, Jesus mentions things in his gospel as he talks to his disciples about the ability to move a mountain or to move a fig tree. Uh, That would be an example of a miracle of power. Um, The idea of raising the dead which we see paul do in the book of acts is a miracle of power but healing are probably the most well-known so we'll skip over healing here helping T- check that one out talk about the weaker but indispensable thing and this is true of the role of wife too right remember what the wife is to be according to genesis 2 um, a help meet, i think is the old king james word or a helper uh, is the more commonly seen English translation today. Support, the role of support, is important. Not everyone can lead. If everyone leads, no one follows, and it's just a mess of every man doing his own thing, right? It's not the way God designed the body to work. Your fingers aren't all fighting each other all the time, trying to each do their own thing. Your brain is what leads and it tells your fingers what to do and your fingers listen. But your fingers then are supporting the brain because your fingers, well, they're the thing that grab the food and then put the food into the mouth and together with the mouth and then the different parts of the digestive system that gets what is needed, the nutrients needed to support the nourish the body. If this doesn't happen, your brain ceases working, right? See how the body imagery is still really helpful here. Helping is a good thing. Without help, well, we'd be without help. Administrating, there are just tasks that need to be done, even in our churches and in our homes, and then various kinds of tongues. This tongues idea, historically by the church, again, has been viewed as the idea of real languages that other people spoke. And this was a multicultural context. Even just within Corinth, you had people from all over the world that visited this little port city. Um, It's a port city in the Roman Empire, fairly prosperous at that. So Roman um, people lived there, the Jews lived there. You've got Greek and Aramaic being spoken, at least plus others. Um, And so the ability to speak in different languages is a gift so that you can share the gospel to these other peoples too. Do all have all these different gifts? And he's, this is a list of rhetorical questions from Paul, right? He doesn't expect them to write an, a letter back to him saying, all are not apostles. All do not speak in tongues. It's taken that they're going to understand the answer to these things is no. And again, unfortunately, there are Christians today who say that if you can't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit isn't in you. Here's another example in chapter 12. Second one, right? Verse 11 already has done this. Verse 30 does it again different gifts we're not all made to speak in tongues that's okay in fact it's good all right and then verse 31 earnestly desire the higher gifts and that's the idea that again some of these things are higher it doesn't mean the other ones don't matter but it's okay to ask the lord it's okay to pray to the lord for the higher gifts so that you may use them in order to serve your neighbor Paul is going to then finish that verse by saying, I will show you a still more excellent way, and then he's going to spend chapter 13, next week's text, talking about the idea of love. So we'll see that one when we get back together. And our final reading, the gospel text according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter, verses 16 through 30. Now, before we dig into the text, recapping. We have seen in recent weeks uh, the baptism of Jesus, that was what, on the calendar two weeks ago with the baptism of our Lord Sunday, the first Sunday mm-hmm. after the Epiphany. Then we had what would be the temptation of Jesus, and we skip that, actually, briefly. We will pick up the temptation of Jesus at the beginning of Luke chapter 4 as our first Sunday gospel text in the season of Lent, and then... You would go from, so you've got baptism at the end of chapter 3, temptation in the wilderness, chapter 4. And then you have the beginning of Jesus' ministry in verses 14 and 15 that we skip over. So we'll read verses 1 through 13 about the temptation, and we'll read here starting at verse 16. We skip over the two verses about how he starts his ministry and instead last week as our gospel text on the second sunday after the epiphany we saw from john's gospel one of the first things that happens in jesus time of ministry his first miracle was substituted in to our calendar together so here we are continuing on then jesus has begun his ministry and i think it is helpful to pick up verses 14 and 15 to set the stage for this so even though this is not part of our text for the weekend I'm looking it up right now. Hang on. I will read for you verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, went out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now he returns to Galilee to do the work that God has sent him to do. And the reports are going around about him. People are hearing about him. They're seeing what Jesus is doing, and they're telling others the good news, that they think that the Christ has come. Right? Here's this man who teaches with authority. Here's this man who heals. Here's this man who casts out demons. Here's this man telling us about the coming of the kingdom of God. Come listen to him. That's the kind of stuff that would be in those sorts of reports. And then we learn in verse 15 that he was teaching in their synagogues. That's important because we see it in verse 16 as was his custom. It's a custom because that's how he started his ministry, was going around and preaching in the synagogues. So he sets it up, that's his habit, that's his normal way of acting. And it's not unique in that sense because we'll see Paul do this too. As Paul goes on his missionary journeys, we often think of Paul being the missionary of the church to the Gentiles, and he does do that, but he always, not always, he usually starts, when he gets to a new city, by going into the Jewish synagogue because they had the Holy Scriptures, and he would read their Scripture to them, and then he would show them how that Scripture pointed to Jesus. That, that's Paul's starting point of how he founds many of the churches that he starts. All right, so now we can dig into our text. Let's go ahead and just take 16 through 19 uh, as one, and then we'll do verses 20 through 30. to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus here returns to his home town. So Luke has shorthanded the start of Jesus' ministry. Doesn't tell us for how long verses 14 and 15 cover, but Jesus has gone to various villages and he's been teaching. And now he comes home to the place where he was raised. And he does the same thing. He starts by going to the synagogue On the Sabbath and he reads the Bible to the people this is again that connection to our Old Testament reading from Nehemiah chapter 8 that Jesus is doing what Ezra did Ezra the priest read the book of the law and then he taught from it the Levites taught from it that's the pattern in the synagogues and that's what Jesus does as well now in a show about the lectionary the interesting question here is did Jesus go off script Ultimately, he didn't because he stayed in God's word, but they had a lectionary at that time. They would often read something from the book of Moses and then something from what they called the book of the prophets. We would think of the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. And so that day in their synagogue, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, so he was handed the book of Isaiah to read. They didn't have books yet, as we know books like a bound thing with pages they had scrolls you know the text was round up onto either papyrus or parchment scrolls could be made from either at this time in history probably getting more still probably still more towards papyrus and so jesus is reading from isaiah but did he read the text from isaiah that was assigned for that day or not i don't know um I'm not familiar enough, and I don't know that we can be familiar enough with their lectionary, and even if we were, we're not told what day this is. So Jesus may have gone off script, or he might have stuck to it and just read anything in Isaiah, because so much of Isaiah points to him. All of the Old Testament points to Christ. This is what Philip does with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, that he sees him reading the prophet isaiah and then he just jumped in and where he was reading he uses that to show him jesus so jesus is going to use this passage in isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 to show them that he is that christ he is that messiah so the spirit of the lord is upon me that happened with jesus at his baptism because he has anointed me uh, anointed The anointed one is what the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, means. It's also what the Greek word Christos, Christ, means. So Jesus here declaring himself to be the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, to proclaim good news to the poor. He's been set apart. That's what anointing did, typically set apart to be king, priest, or prophet. Jesus set apart in all of those things, but set apart to proclaim good news to the poor. Right? The poor want good news. They don't have things luxuriously. They don't have things comfortably in this life. So what good news can Jesus offer to them? Well, here it is. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty from sin. right, Liberty for those who are oppressed. So rescue from the devil's clutches. To give sight to the blind. That might remind you of the hymn Amazing Grace I once was blind but now i see to proclaim the year of the lord's favor that in christ you have his favor you have his forgiveness you have his love you have his salvation and that this is good so jesus rolls up the scroll gives it back to the attendant the one who's responsible for keeping the the scrolls making sure that they're cared for then he sits down This isn't sitting in the pew. This is actually sitting down to teach, as we see Jesus elsewhere, for example, sit in a boat to teach the people that were on the shore. It's kind of the opposite of the picture that we described in the Old Testament text of the the pulpit idea, that you would get up in a pulpit so that you could be seen by everyone and heard by everyone. It seems to have been the other way around. And perhaps what sitting as a teacher does is it gets rid of that time element, you sit down, there's just the picture of comfort, relaxation, maybe the, the removal of, of rush because you're not standing up. You're not going to be able to just walk away at any time. You're, you're sitting there. It's calmer, more relaxed. Maybe that's part of it. I'm not sure. But that's what they did. And this is the, the norm. And everyone is looking at Jesus. He's read the word, now they, they're they waiting for him to expound on it. And he does by saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He has just done it. He has just proclaimed good news to them, that he is the Savior. He is the anointed one. He has just brought liberty to the oppressed. They're the oppressed by sin, death, and the devil. And he has now offered them life in himself. And they... They will reject it. At first, they're just like, well, he speaks well. They, they were marveled by his words, but then the doubt sets in. This is Joseph's son. Is not this Joseph's son? And and Jesus recognizes it. And his, his response is interesting. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb physician, heal yourself. That's not a... Biblical proverb, a proverb is a wise saying, so they had their own proverbs too, and this must have been one among them, the idea that a good physician would be able to heal himself. Um, This would be akin when Jesus is on the cross to them yelling at him, come down now, save yourself, and then we will believe in you. So physician, heal yourself. They want to see his miracles that's in Jesus own mouth right what we hear you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well the the people didn't say that Jesus is accusing them of basically believing it like this is their desire and so he says to you no prophet he says to them no prophet is acceptable in his hometown they knew him as a child and the transition to seeing him as God as their Savior is thus difficult Um. And they don't overcome that. So he gives them a couple of examples from the Old Testament about how faith, the gift of salvation, has actually expanded beyond just the people of Israel. And so from 1 Kings chapter 17, the time of famine and Elijah's day, and that Elijah could have healed, or he could have saved, he could have worked with many widows in the land of Israel, but God sent him to a widow in Zarephath up in Sidon, which is not Israel, it's up to the north. Tyre and Sidon were port cities on the Mediterranean Sea. And then again, in verse 27, he points to 2 Kings chapter five. There were many lepers in Israel, but Elisha was given to heal Naaman, the Syrian commander, Syria being the neighboring nation to the northeast. This made them angry. And they rose up, they drove him out of the town, they brought him to the edge of the cliff, and they wanted to throw him off. They weren't going to believe, right? You don't go from saying, oh yeah, he said that pretty well, to trying to kill him that quickly if there was really belief in your heart to begin with. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they had hardened hearts. He knew that they weren't going to receive him, and so he goes to their judgment. Similar to what we'll see him do in Luke, I think, is it chapter 19 with the rich ruler? The rich ruler had all sorts of sins but lied. Well, in fairness, he thought he was telling the truth. Wrongly believed that he had kept all of the commandments from his youth. Instead of pointing out all the ways he'd broken the commandments, Jesus went straight for the idol in his heart. Crushed it. Sell everything you own. Give it to the poor and follow me. And he couldn't do it. And so Jesus knows the hearts of these men, and he cuts straight to it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He condemns them. Well, he allows them to show their own condemnation. might be the better way to say it here, because he he expresses the idea that God's going to save the Gentiles, and they are angered by it to the point where they want to kill him, but they can't. Verse 30 is a miracle. I mentioned in in the previous text that miracles are something that it's when God does something outside of the ordinary. This is a miracle. If they had you or I stuck in that position, imagine a raging crowd and your back is to a cliff and they're coming for you. What chance do you have of getting out of that situation? I'd be done for. I'd be stuck. Prayerfully, like I, best case scenario, I would be able to pray a prayer right there on the spot like Stephen. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The words Jesus says on the cross as well. May I be so bold. May the Lord give me such faith. Instead, we would probably be scratching and clawing and fighting back and trying to save ourselves. Um, May we not do such a thing. Anyway, Jesus just disappears, right? They're trying to kill him and all of a sudden he just walks through them. This one strikes me as Red Sea-like, that God parts the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground Jesus just passes right through him. There's no way the raging crowd is going to willingly let him pass through, but he's able to just pass through. Because, again, this is a miracle um, that, that God has done. Jesus' time has not yet come. This is not the death that is planned for him, the death that would forgive our sins. And so it can't happen. They can't kill him. This is good news for us. Again, Jesus teaching right here that the gospel is for all people. That the gospel belongs even to the Gentiles. That the Lord has sent his son Jesus Christ to save us. Amen. Amen.